Good morning, VRVC, uh, in person, online, so great to have you. Uh, if you are of a certain age, the title of this Advent series uh, triggers a little jukebox in your head, right? In fact, you just heard the song, uh, 1981 rock legend Tom Petty put out a single on his Hard Promises album. Uh, it's called The Waiting, and um, he, he said the idea for the song came from uh, something that his friend, the singer Janis Joplin, once said about life on the road during a concert tour. Janis Joplin said, I love being on stage and everything else is just waiting. The pages of the Bible would testify that you don't have to be a rock star to struggle with waiting. Uh, waiting on God is hard, isn't it? It tests our faith. Uh, it, it, it challenges our hope. Sometimes it may even impede our love for God or our love for others. But Advent is all about waiting. Advent is about waiting for God to intervene. And waiting is hard, uh, but waiting is formative. Waiting can even be rewarding. Uh, ben Patterson is a pastor that I follow, and uh, he says that waiting is not just something you do until the day gets here that you've been waiting for. He says that waiting is part of the process of becoming what we hope for. Waiting is part of the discipleship process. Waiting does something inside of us. And so as we launch Advent 2022, we're gonna talk about the role that waiting plays in our lives and how waiting on the Messiah fulfills our deepest longings. And so today, we're gonna focus on waiting for rescue, waiting for the Messiah Jesus to rescue us. And, and, and for today's uh, text, we're going to turn to a prophet who was well acquainted with waiting. His whole life was waiting. Uh, in, in many ways, his whole life was, was suffering. If there's anybody who felt a need to send up a rescue flare, uh, it would be this guy. His name is Jeremiah. I invite you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 23. A little bit about Jeremiah while you're finding the passage. Jeremiah got into the prophet business against his will uh, while he was still young. Uh, he was a, a small, uh, he was from a small town, he was from a small tribe, uh, and yet here he is sort of thrust onto the stage in Jerusalem. And Jeremiah is going to learn what it means to suffer, he's going to learn what it means to wait for God to intervene. He's a man who spent months in prison for faithfully preaching God's word. He was once imprisoned in a muddy cistern and basically left there to die. He didn't. Uh, he was a man who had to watch the scroll that kept the words of his faithful pre preaching kind of cut up into pieces and thrown into the fire by a, a king named Jehoiakim. And then God told Jeremiah, I want you to start all over again, writing the scroll, writing the book of, of my faithful word. Let's just say that when it comes to waiting for rescue, Jeremiah knows what he's talking about. When it comes to experiencing horrible leadership role, model, role models, Jeremiah is an, an expert. And so I want you to listen to what he has to say, or really what God has to say through Jeremiah, to those who are waiting on rescue. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 through 8, hear the word of the Lord. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says 
to the shepherds who tend my sheep. Because you've scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them and will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. The name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteous Savior. So then, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When people will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt. But they will say, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he had banished them. Then they will live in their own land. May God bless the reading of his word. So Jeremiah lived in politically tumultuous times. He lived in the friction of shifting tectonic plates of global superpowers like Egypt to the south and Assyria to the immediate north and then beyond Assyria, Babylon. And and during Jeremiah's day, Assyria was falling, but Babylon was rising. And Jeremiah would witness so many terrible things in his life. He would eventually see so many of his fellow citizens deported to Babylon. He would see the holy city of Jerusalem gutted. He would see the temple looted and destroyed. But before that catastrophe happened, when Judah was facing a terrible future, what were her leaders doing? Were they calling on the people to repent? Were they modeling repentance? Sadly, no. The passage that I just read you describes God's heartache over the gross incompetence of Israel's leaders. And it would be nice if that were only a blip on the radar, right? It would be great if the world had never before since seen that kind of leadership malpractice. That would be nice, wonderful even, but it's not true. One of the sad themes of our passage is that part of the waiting for us, part of even Advent in in a sense, is, is having to deal with the brutal facts that we live in a world that's cursed by leadership failure. What do I mean by leadership failure? Well, maybe somewhat explanatory. It's it's leaders doing the exact opposite of their ideal job description. And verse one lays out the theme with devastating clarity. Verse one says, woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. In the ancient world, religious leaders and kings even were referred to as shepherds. I mean, think about it. God is a shepherd, 23rd Psalm. God uh, sees his role as a shepherd. And God calls earthly leaders to, to lead and rule like he does. God wants kings, in other words, of Israel to, to keep the flock together, to protect the flock from internal and external threat. And in Jeremiah's day, um, he served with three different kings. One was a good king, his name was Josiah. Unfortunately, he died young. And the next two kings that he served with were um, 
exactly the opposite of the ideal king. It, the, the next two kings were the kinds that are called out here in, in verse 1. We've already mentioned one of them, Jehoiakim. He's the guy that burned the scroll that Jeremiah produced. He was actually appointed uh, through pressure from the Egyptians. And then the current king, Zedekiah, uh, is this sort of puppet king that the Babylonians have influenced to be installed as Israel's king. More on Zedekiah in a minute. But it's to these kings of Jehoiakim and, and, and Zedekiah that God pronounces a, a curse, a woe. That word woe is sort of a, when, when you see that word, it's, it's sort of a combination of, of judgment, but also sadness, mourning. Right? Woe, it's not supposed to be this way. Leaders are not supposed to lead this way. Uh, and, and so God pronounces this curse. He pronounces judgment. Um, and he pronounces this judgment on these two kings uh, of, of Jehoiakim and Zedekiah. Exhibit A and B, you might say, of leadership failure. And so it might be good to ask, why do these guys typify leadership failure? Why do they typify leadership malpractice? Well, let's look at the evidence that is laid out for us in our passage. First of all, verse 1 says that these leaders, these anti-shepherds really, they're, they're actually herding the sheep. And if you're a shepherd, that's not good, herding the sheep. Uh, if you're a shepherd, think about it, sheep are your main business, right? Uh, they're, they're your one asset if you are a shepherd. The flourishing of the sheep, that's your number one job if you're a shepherd. But these kings are doing the opposite. They're harming the sheep. That's not all. In, in the first two verses, one and two, uh, these anti-shepherds are also scattering or, or dividing the sheep. Sheep find safety in numbers. A lost sheep will eventually become a dead sheep. But, but these shepherds, they weren't, they weren't bringing the flock together. They were dividing, scattering the flock. But that's not all. They were also ignoring the welfare of the sheep. I mean, a, a sheep is vulnerable. A sheep depends upon the shepherd to, to protect it with its rod and staff, to, to lead it to green pastures, to lead it to still waters. But these leaders were basically saying, hey, look, I'm not going to waste my time coddling sheep. I, I'm not here to babysit sheep, okay? Uh, I, I, let them figure it out on their own. I've got better things to do as a shepherd than to care for sheep. What's the result? By implication, verse 4 says, the sheep were vulnerable. They're hungry. They're afraid. They're, they're terrified. Sadly, many are missing. Talk about leadership failure. No wonder Jeremiah calls it evil in verse 2, because leadership malpractice is evil. You know, when you think about it, one of the deepest woes in our world today is that of leadership failure. I mean, this is certainly true in the, in the political realm, isn't it? I mean, we can think of countries where dictators rule with an iron fist, and any attempts to resist tyranny, whether it's protesting in Tiananmen Square or taking off your hijab in, in, in Tehran, it's met with swift, brutal reprisal. But unfortunately, we don't have to look across an ocean to see political leaders who say they're about serving the people, but really are about serving themselves. 
And in my humble opinion, it seems like we citizens have become, many of us, so addicted to partisan propaganda that when a member of the party we support does something morally reprehensible, instead of holding them accountable, what do we do? We look across the aisle and say, but what about them? (laughs) What about what they did? And we're so trapped in this binary of propaganda that we can no longer speak the truth about moral and spiritual reality. I mean, if it's, if it's pass interference in this end zone, it ought to be pass interference in this end zone, right? If, it, if it's balls and strikes at the top of the inning, it ought to be balls and strikes at the bottom of the inning. We ought to call out moral and spiritual reality. But we could also talk about leadership failure, not just on a political level. We could talk about leadership failure in the workplace too, couldn't we? No show of hands, please. But I wonder how many people in this room have endured miserable months of your lives, maybe even miserable years of your lives, under the terrible leadership of a boss or supervisor. Maybe they never praised you, but were always quick to criticize you. Maybe they kept putting that carrot out there. That if you worked way too hard, way too long, if you sacrificed way more than you should, that that you would finally get the carrot, but the carrot never came. How many of us have suffered leadership failure at work? And then, of course, it would be convenient for somebody like me to ignore leadership failure at church, wouldn't it? But the word pastor literally means Shepherd. There's a reason why in English, pastor and pasture sound similar. And yet, how many pastors and church leaders have harmed the sheep, hurt the sheep, divided the sheep, ignored the sheep? Over the last year and a half or so, I've listened to a, a podcast series. It just, it just completed. It's put out by Uh, Christianity Today, and it's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Mars Hill was the name of a church in Seattle that was, for a season, one of the most influential churches in the world. Tens of thousands of sermon podcasts would be downloaded each week. The pastor, Mark Driscoll, wrote books, and sad to say, I read at least one of them, even visited his church once. Um, Now, don't get me wrong, Mars Hill did a lot of good things. But unfortunately, it turns out that the pastor of that church was was angry and abusive. He was misogynistic and deceptive. And in 2013, the whole church just imploded. Some people have called it the Enron of churches. And one of the most heartbreaking things to me about the podcast is that there were former Mars Hill church members and staff members who were interviewed, men and women who gave their heart and soul to the work of that church. And and, and some of them were so wounded, some of them were so disillusioned by what they'd experienced that they'd left Christianity altogether. The Lord says, woe to the shepherds who are scattering, dividing abusing, ignoring the sheep. I'm telling you, when I, when, when I, 
when I think of leadership failure like that, I understand the brokenhearted outrage of Jeremiah's words. Leadership failure is a curse. It impacts the lives of so many people. But thankfully, this passage is not just an expose on leadership failure. It is so much more than that. In fact, I I find in this passage a a deep drink of Advent hope for discouraged people. People that have been waiting and waiting and waiting for so long for good news on the leadership front. And I think part of the good news of Advent is this. It's that God reverses the curse by giving us a true leader. God reverses the, the curse of leadership failure by giving us a true leader in Jesus. Uh, Do do you hear God's resolve in verse three? The Lord says, I myself am gonna take charge. I myself will regather the sheep. I'll bring them back to their pasture. And then in verse five, we learn how God intends to do this. He intends to do this by giving us this true leader. I, I think verse five is this injection of Advent hope into our veins. Listen to verse five. The days are coming. The days are coming. We are in this period of waiting, God says to the people of Jeremiah's day. But the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. Jeremiah gives words to a people waiting on God that the days are coming when a different king will sit on the throne. And this new king won't be like a rotten branch with no substance, with no moral or spiritual strength. No, he will be holy, he will be righteous. He won't fleece the sheep. He won't make mutton chops and eat the sheep. No, he will will protect the sheep. He will demonstrate wisdom and and justice. He will embody true leadership. And this is exactly what the angel says about this coming leader, about Jesus, to Mary in Luke chapter one. The angel says to Mary, he will be great. Your son will be great, Mary. And he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give your son, Mary, the throne of his father, King David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. And his kingdom will never end. Every rotten leader, every tyrant, every corrupt leader has a shelf life. Thankfully, one day they'll be gone. But Mary's child, who'll sit on David's throne, inherits a kingdom that will never end. George Handel wrote a joyful song about it. And he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. This is a cause for celebration, church. This is the true leader our souls await, a righteous and wise leader, a loving and sacrificial leader. In fact, there's this interesting play on words in verse six when the name, one of the names of the true leader is revealed. I mentioned that Jeremiah had to live through a a terrible leader named Zedekiah. Zedekiah's name is actually a beautiful name. It's, It's Yahweh is my righteousness. That's what Zedekiah means. But unfortunately, he did not live up to his name. But 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 look in verse six. Verse six says, 
in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. Very similar. The, the wording is very similar in Hebrew. But, but isn't it interesting, the contrast? Zedekiah had the title, but he didn't have the testimony. But you and I put our trust in one who has the title because he has the testimony. He is our righteous Savior. He is the giver of righteousness. The Apostle Paul, centuries later, will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, he was a sinless one, but God made him to be sin for us, to take our sin upon himself, so that in exchange we might become the righteousness of God. The Lord, our righteous Savior, will give us his righteousness. I think that's good news. But I want to make a turn in the sermon. I once heard that every good sermon has to answer two questions. The first question is what, and the second question is so what? If that's true, by the way, I've preached a lot of bad sermons, and I'm, I apologize to you for that. But, uh, but I want to get to that often neglected second question. I hope up to this point you've got a pretty good idea of the what of this sermon in your head. If I asked you to summarize it, you'd say something like, well, uh, in a world of failed leadership, Advent hope rests on the true leader, the righteous shepherd, Jesus. That's the what. But let's look for a few minutes at the so what. What difference does this make in our lives? What, what difference does this passage from Jeremiah 23 make for you and me today, right now? Well, the first thing I think may seem small, but I think it's significant, and that is it gives us reassurance. You're not wrong to long for righteous leadership. You were made to long for righteous leadership. I think what this passage does is it helps us separate title from testimony. It helps us call out bad leadership of those who have the leadership title but don't have the testimony of good leadership. Now, why is this important? Well, I think many of us have lived with cognitive dissonance when it comes to flawed leadership role models. We just kind of, kind of said, mm, that's just the way it is. Now, that's just the way leaders behave. They did bad stuff, but, you know, I guess we should give them a pass. They were our leader. Right? They were our pastor. Jeremiah 23 says no. If a shepherd hurts the sheep, if a shepherd divides the sheepfold, if a shepherd neglects the sheep, if a shepherd abandons the sheep, it doesn't really matter how well they preach or how well they sing or how well they administrate. Right? Bad leadership breaks God's heart. And friends, I want you to know that, that wasn't God hurting you. Right? God is pained if someone in authority hurt you. Right? We need to be reassured of that fact. Right? Yes, we're called to forgive them, but we're never called to excuse leadership malpractice. I hope that's reassuring to you today. But as we kind of continue with the so what, I'm going to turn the tables on you a little bit. Because I think there's not only room for reassurance about other leaders, <laughs> there's also room for repentance about our influence. In other words, you and I 
must put our testimony over our titles. You see, I think so many of us are in a position of having influence, of having leadership, of having shepherd-like responsibility over others. And so I want to say to you today, if you're a parent, if you're a teacher, if you're a coach, uh, if you're a boss, I I think even uh, young people, if you're an older sibling, you are responsible to some degree for those who look to you for leadership. For those who are vulnerable and and look to you for guidance. And sometimes, too often, we we lean into our titles, don't we? We say, look, I'm the boss, okay? I don't have to give you a reason. I'm the boss. I told you to do it. You do it. I'm your parent. I don't have to have logic. Uh, It's just, I just told you, you. You need to do it, right? I'm your pastor. Have you been to seminary? I don't think so. I don't have to have a moral basis. I can just lean into the title. No. No. There's there's so much room for repentance, right? Jesus said in Matthew 20, remember, he says, here's the way the Caesars lead. Here's the way the Gentiles lead. They lord it over others. They, They abuse leadership. But not so with you, he said. The greatest influencers among you are the servants. They're servant leaders. I probably haven't done it enough, either as a boss or as a pastor uh, or as a dad, but there have been times when I just had to look people in the eye and say, look, I'm sorry, Uh, I I let you down. You deserve better than what I gave you in that moment. So maybe if you are in a position of leadership or influence, maybe you need to reflect with me on verse 4. Because in verse 4, God not only promises a new and better David, uh, the Messiah, Jesus, but but look what else verse 4 says. I will place shepherds, plural, over them who will tend them. And they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. I will place shepherds. I, uh, I always think about reading somebody said that Jesus is the good shepherd, but he has a lot of sheepdogs. Right? And, uh, and, and, and God has, has, has put so many of us in the roles of under shepherds where we're assisting uh, the, the great shepherd of the sheep. And we have a responsibility too as leaders, as influencers, as parents, as, uh, uh, as teachers to, to confess unrighteous leadership. Repentance is a beautiful thing. And as important as that is, I don't think that's my biggest so what for for this passage. I think the biggest so what for me is is rejoicing. Because of this passage and the truth behind it, this passage assures me that our leader, Jesus, is still telling his story. And that's the true leadership story we build our lives around. I think this this is captured in verses 7 and 8, but it's easy to miss uh, I, I missed it the first couple of times I read it. And so let me, let me try to paraphrase it for you. Verse 7 suggests that if you lived in the days of Jeremiah and you were sitting around the campfire and everybody was telling God's stories, the biggest stories that you could imagine of God's faithfulness, well, there was one story that always rose to the top, and that was the story of the Exodus. 
And you get it, right? I mean, there's Moses, and there's the Red Sea, and he's holding his staff out, and and the the Red Sea parts, and Israel goes over on dry land and and makes it to the promised land. I mean, it's hard to think of a bigger story than that. But verse 8 says, one day, guess what? When people are sitting around the campfire, and they try to think of the biggest God story they could tell, they're going to tell a different story. It's going to be a rescue story like Moses in the Red Sea, but it's going to be different. It's going to be people drawn together from out of the north. Originally, uh, as Israel makes it back through leaders like Nehemiah and Ezra, as they make it back, they rebuild the temple. But eventually, eventually, it's going to be the story of Jesus who leads a new exodus against the enemies of evil and sin and death. A Jesus who overcomes Pharaoh the devil. Jesus who, as Paul puts it in Colossians, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us, brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, the true leader. Jeremiah suggests that's the story that people will one day tell around the campfire. That's the story of rescue. The story of a good shepherd. As amazing a shepherd leader as Moses was, Moses didn't lay down his life to redeem the people, but Jesus did. We rejoice, church. Jesus is not the leader, as John 10 says, who kills and steals and destroys. He's the leader who gives life and life abundant. One of the most powerful experiences that I had in Italy was in a little mountain town in Umbria called Assisi. And um, this is just a, a, a you can just kind of see its beauty, right? It's, it's, it's uh, most well-known, Assisi is, is the home of a rich playboy named Francis who dreamed of glory and battle, but instead was captured and uh, became a POW for a while and was very disillusioned about life. And... Uh, And God spoke, or or Jesus spoke to Francis through a mystical vision. Uh, Francis had a vision of Jesus on the cross saying to him, rebuild my church, rebuild my house. And and, and, and at first, Francis took this literally, (laughs) and he would go through the village of Assisi, and, and he would beg for stones, and he would rebuild, help rebuild, repair literal church buildings. But somewhere along the way, Francis discovered that so many church leaders had grown corrupt. So many shepherd leaders were doing the opposite of what they were called to do. And that God was calling Francis and his friends to a new kind of leadership, a Jesus kind of leadership. God was calling Francis to live simply, to live humbly, to live sacrificially, to live joyfully. And soon that influence grew and men surrounded Francis and they would come to be known as the Franciscans and, and women surrounded Francis' good friend Claire and they would come to be known as the Claires. And, and when we were in Assisi, I saw the coolest thing. You see, centuries ago, after the time of Francis, Christians built this beautiful basilica around one of those simple churches where Francis did manual labor, one of those uh, simple little chapels that Francis helped to repair. It's called the Portiancula, the, the little portion. So imagine this 
incredibly beautiful basilica. And then in the middle, there's this little stone chapel. It's been decorated some, as you can see, through the years. But, but this is just one of those simple little churches. And for 800 years, in that mountain city of Assisi, Pilgrims have come throughout the, from throughout the world, and they've come to do, like, like I did, walk into that little chapel. I mean, it's barely bigger than this stage. And it's like inside the church was a little church. <laughs> and in that little church inside the church, it's, it's like the, 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 the church was saying, let's not forget the heart of what we're about. The heart of what we're about is not Francis, by the way. Francis would say, the heart of what we're about is Jesus, a new kind of leader. Jesus is our portiancula. He's our portion. This Advent, friends, we await a Savior. And this Savior is the center of our church. He's David's son, but he's also David's Lord. He's our good shepherd He's our righteousness. This Advent, we pray, true leader Jesus, come and rescue us. Let's pray. Lord, a a passage like this is so challenging, Lord. It speaks so honestly about the worst things that men and women in authority can do to one another. And yet at the same time, Lord, it speaks so hopefully about who you are and about what you've done on the cross. You did not come to fleece the sheep. You came to rescue us. And for that, Lord, we say in our souls, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Lord, may this be the story we tell around the campfire. May this be the story we aspire to in our own spheres of influence. You, Lord, our righteous leader, our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.